So, my husband decided to not make it super easy on me. I don't get to just preach like, here's how to be a great mom. Um, which I love being a mom. I think it's an amazing thing, as most of us moms do, hopefully. Um, but I'm actually really excited that I'm not only teaching about being a mom this morning. I get to talk on something that applies to all of us as believers. And being a mom is a wonderful thing, um, but it's not our identity. And some of what I'm talking about this morning, um, it's still in our God and Sex series, but it's it relates to our identity. And um, Kel mentioned last week, he talked about how sex was godly, it was a gift, and how um, it became an idol, and um, how that got messed up in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. And um, I want to propose, we not only have an idol problem, we have an identity problem. So Adam and Eve in the Garden, the enemy said to them, who God says you are, basically this is what he said, I'm super paraphrasing, um, it isn't enough. You need to be something other than what you are. And so their identities got mixed up. They believed a lie about their identity, and that altered the course of everything for us, right? Set things in motion um, to where we are today. So I want to propose we have an identity problem, um, and that applies to, it comes filtering into the way we view sex and the way we view sexuality. So, um, before I get started into my into the scripture, I want to just quickly, I don't have a lot of time for this, but I want to quickly just read some statistics and some quotes, because I think it'll help ground us and give us lenses as we view scripture, as we um, ask God for a heart. So, I didn't even say what I'm talking about this morning. Besides God and sex, I'm specifically talking about how we love the sexually broken. Um, and as Kel mentioned last week, we're all sexually broken on some level. Um, but today, I really want to home in on how we love those um, who don't believe what we believe. They're not yet surrendered to God. They're still living in sin. They wouldn't even acknowledge um, the way they're living is sin. How do we love and minister to these people? But I'm just going to read you um, some statistics and some quotes, like I already said. These um, statistics are from a six-year study um, conducted by a guy named Andrew Marin, and then he took that study and he vetted it with two professors um, who had opposing viewpoints. One was a Christian psychologist, and the other was an atheist who was a pro proponent of LGBT um, issues. And so he just, basically he just said, hey, will you look this over and um, vet it and tell me, was my methodology on the up and up? So it's not tainted, it's not um, slanted one way or another. So he surveyed 1,712 people in the LGBT community. You guys are going to be blown away by these stats. 83% of those 1,712 people were raised in the church. 51% left their faith by the age of 18. But only 3%, 3% of that number, said they left because of the church's belief that same-sex marriage was wrong. Only 3%. By and large, they left because they didn't feel safe, they didn't feel loved, they didn't feel heard. Not because of the church's theology. So the church, we don't have a theology problem, we have a love and care problem. Um, these are some quotes. Um, this is from a book uh, by a guy named, I'm totally blanking on his name, Preston Sprinkle. Thank you. Um, he inter interviewed people in the LGBT community. These are some quotes. 
This is from a guy named Ben. I left the church because I couldn't find one person who cared to listen to my story. I mean, really listen. I'm talking about listening to the extent, sorry, I didn't start my timer, so. Listening to the extent of investing into my journey with my faith so deeply that I can actually call them brother or sister and mean it. The next quote is from a girl named Tasha. She says, all I wanted was to feel loved by those in the church I grew up with. Love is giving me time to be with you to figure this out together. If you let any church read this, tell them I don't have to be right to feel loved. I have to be dignified in our disagreement. And this last quote is um, from a man who is an author. His name is Drew Harper. Um, He says this, I 100% believe that Christians can love and honor, truly love and honor, without changing their theology of sexuality. So again, I want to say, we don't have a theology problem. We have a love and care problem. And um, I know I've specifically... Um, homed in on the LGBT community. Um, I just want to say this talk isn't about that specifically. The reason I'm mentioning it is because, one, that statistic is staggering, and if the church is not talking about the 83%, um, isn't talking about it, we are missing the point. We are missing an opportunity to love and care for a community that feels shamed and slighted and judged and marginalized, and so we have to talk about it. And the thing is, it is a community, right? The the LGBT community, BT community is a community, and by and large, those that um, other sexual other sexual confusion, things like um, pornography or sex outside of marriage, there isn't a community that's formed that they're saying, "Hey, we don't feel loved and seen and heard." Um, I would say there's an agreement that they see, that they recognize that the Bible says something about. It. They're just not submitting to that. Um, but this morning, I am talking about ministering to all of the sexually broken. That, that means how we minister to one another, and that means how we minister to those that do um, wrestle with porno- pornography, th- those that are having sex outside of marriage, those that have had affairs. Um, just across the board, we're talking about all of these, all of these things across the board. So um, I just, I want to read this because I wrote it down and I didn't want to forget to say it. If we're going to reach a people who have been publicly shamed, marginalized, and who experience with, the, with Christians as one of rejection and animosity, we have to do better. And the amazing thing is, the Bible, which is forever written forever ago, right? 2,000 years ago plus, informs how we are to do this today. This, the scripture that we're about to dive into I mean, as I'm reading it this week, I'm going, wow, I cannot believe how many parallels are happening to what happened then, to what we see happening in our culture today. And we think, you know, they had it easier. Was They didn't deal with this debauchery and they didn't deal with this confusion that we're dealing with now. And it's just not true. It's actually in the Bible. The Bible informs us and it's amazing and it's beautiful. Um, we know it's the living word of God. And so I love that we can turn to it and it helps instruct and inform us how we're to minister in this culture today. So before I read the text, I'm going to set it up. Um, This text we're about to read takes place during something called the Feast or Festival of Tabernacles. Um, This was a time when the Jews came together to celebrate and commemorate 
uh, what God did for them in the wilderness and in harvest, how he provided. It was music, it was dancing, people set up makeshift tents. Does this sound like anything that has happened recently with music and dancing and people camping out for days? It was days long. Basically, it was the original Coachella, right? So you would think at the OG Coachella that there would be nothing debauched happening, because I know, I, I've never been to Coachella, but I've seen some photos, and it seems like some shady stuff goes down there. You would think an event that is celebrating God, honoring God, that nothing shady would be happening, or, or maybe, maybe Jesus knew, maybe that's why he's there teaching today, you know, day to day, just going, sometimes my people lose the plot, and so I should probably be there in case they need to have to, a come to me meeting, come to Jesus meeting. Um, so he's there teaching during this time, and this is the scene that unfolds. It's John 8. We're going to pick up in verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning. He came again to the temple. And he sat, all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone, to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, and as they continued to ask, ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. I'm just going to pray quickly before we unpack. God, we thank you that your word is alive today, that it informs who we are. It tells us who you are. It instructs us, instructs us in how to live in this very culture we're living in. We're so grateful. God, will you give us ears to hear today? Will you speak through me your words, things that need to pierce hearts, things that need to transform today? God, will you be present with us as we unpack your word? Um, so, I think some of you know the history. Some of you guys know what the scribes and the Pharisees are, but I'm just going to quickly touch on that. The scribes were people that copied and wrote the law, and they also had the authority to um, like write out laws, right? So they, they knew it. It was ingrained in them, and the Pharisees were those that lived out. They, they thought they were better than the common people because they lived out the law to a T. There was some crossover, but not one doesn't equal the other. And these two, two groups of people got together to basically bring Jesus down in this situation. And um, I don't know how you feel in this day and age, but I feel like this is relevant to us, right? Because there's people that are either super religious, that know the Bible in and out, that will tell you this is what it says, but there's no revelation, there's no heart, and we know that they're watching us. And then there's people um, that wouldn't say they... they know God, but they know like what the actual law says, or they know what the Bible says, that we get a lot of like, God wouldn't judge, God doesn't judge, we hear that a lot, right? 
So we get it from both sides. And Jesus is in the midst of this, kind of a rock and a hard place. And I think oftentimes we find ourselves in that rock and hard place of like, I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want to condone sin, but I don't want to like not love people. So we get in this, and, and then there's people right before us. I mean, we have to remember that there's this woman. It's not just two groups of like accusers. It's, it's spectators that Jesus was teaching. And then it's this woman who's standing on the side, broken. So what does he do? What does he do? How are we to love the sexually broken? How do we do this? How do we represent him well? Well, WWJD, right? So what does Jesus do? Let's just read again specifically in the scripture what he does. Picking up in in part of verse 6, it says, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down on the ground. So Jesus' answer to this rock in this hard place, this very intense scene, is to doodle in the sand. And that wouldn't have been my first go-to, right? My first go-to would probably be like, Jesus, you should open up a can on everybody here. Like, you should, like, he, in every right, he, he has rights to you. And I used to think when I read this, I, I thought I had it figured out because we don't know what Jesus wrote and lots of um, theologians have spectated on, on, and guesstimated on what he wrote. I used to think, like, I had it figured out and I was like, I've got it. This is obviously the answer. Um, he obviously wrote in the sand everyone's sins so they can read it and be like, oh, yes, I'm guilty, and then they walk away. Um, but it doesn't say that. We don't know that that's what happened. And as I was starting to read it this week, I actually um, thought, we actually don't know what happened. And I thought of myself in this situation just going, what would I do? Because he's trapped. If he says, I don't know if you guys know this, but if he says, um, if he says let her go, he's breaking Jewish law. If he says stone her, He's breaking Roman law because only the Romans had the authority to um, authorize an execution. And then he has this woman. I think he stooped down in a posture of humility, and I think in his head he was crying out to the Father, just saying, please, will you help me? Help me navigate this situation. I think it was a pause. I know I'm just speculating, but I'm putting myself in that situation just going, whew, that is a desperate situation. And I think, I think it was a pause. And I think we can learn from this. I think we can pause in a moment when we're ministering to people. It doesn't have to be impetuous. And um, again, if we're going to reach people that are marginalized, um, we have to be willing to, to pause for a moment. And as we read from the testimonies earlier, uh, people aren't encountering Jesus. So what, what's happening here is everyone in this situation, I would propose, somehow encounters Jesus, right? The spectators that were there, he was teaching them to begin with, the accusers that come in, and the woman. Everyone has some kind of encounter with Jesus in this situation. And I think that that's how it should be with us. Anybody that, that comes along our path. I know it's kind of cheesy to say, but anybody that we interact with should experience something of the transformation that God has done in us. People should, 
we should affect people with Jesus. I'm not saying we save people, we don't save people, but I think as we interact with people, there should be something of what's been done in us that people around us are experiencing. The freedom, the joy, the, the provision, the, the, the peace, People, that should rub off on the people around us. And as we read from the, the quotes earlier, that's not what's happening with people coming in the church. What they're meeting isn't Jesus. They're meeting condemnation. They're meeting frustration. Um, and they're meeting um, attempts to modify behavior. They're, they're not being shown this grace and this, this bigness and this might and this transforming power of who God is. And we got to do better. So what does Jesus do? In this text, I think, listen, read your Bibles because there's lots to glean. Uh, We're just going to focus on this particular text this morning. So what does it look like for people to encounter Jesus? What do we do? And my first point, I have three points. I cheated on the second point because there is three in there, but I have three main points. Um, My first point is we engage. I know. It's it's like mind-blowing, right? We engage. Um, So Jesus, in this particular situation, actually had every right to disengage. He could have stood up and said, actually, I don't have the authority to even address this situation. And he could have been like, woman, if you um, live to tomorrow, maybe come back here today. I'm going to be doing some teaching and we can talk about it then. He doesn't disengage. He engages. He he uses this as an opportunity. He actually, um, not only does he transform the woman, but he transforms the accusers because they all sort of reflect back and go, oh, this is about me too. So he doesn't disengage. He engages. And we oftentimes will disengage because we're afraid. We're afraid of being labeled a bigot. We're afraid of looking like we're condoning sin. Uh, we just, you know, we, we sort of take what we think is the high road or the easy road and we'll be like, I'll just pray from them from a distance. Um, we, we disengage for what we think is good reasoning. And I think as we look to this scripture here, we see that that actually isn't an option. Jesus doesn't give us that option, but he doesn't engage impetuously, right? Remember before I said, if it was me, like I would, I want him to like, even though I'm not confrontational, I wanted Jesus to be like, you guys are wrong, and you're wrong, and y'all need me, you know, like, I just want him to, like, go for it, and um, he doesn't do it. He engages, but it's not impetuous, Um, so sometimes we do that, too, right, because uh, the Pharisees and the scribes actually did engage, but they did it hurtfully, and they did it wrongfully, and so either we go to this side where we're like, I'm just going to disengage, I'm just going to pray for people, which is good. I'm not saying praying for people is bad. I'm just going to, like, I'm not going to address anything, or we're like over here where we're like, I'm going to engage, and I'm going to like, you know, Uh, I don't know, keyboard warrioring, we engage, but it's hurtful, and it's righteous, and it becomes not about people, and that's the problem, what happened with the scribes and the Pharisees here, is it wasn't about this woman, right? It was about proving a point, and we sometimes will cling to ideologies, which is fine. There is, the Bible does prescribe, like Kelly said, there is a right and wrong biblically, but we cling to ideologies or we war ideologies rather than fight for people. And that's a problem. So how we engage matters, which, which brings me to my second point, which is we show compassion. 
So we don't just engage, we do it with compassion. And how do we show compassion? This is where I cheated, don't tell Kelly. I have three points within my three points. Um, we show compassion by protecting, we protect. Jesus put his life and his reputation on the line for someone that was clearly guilty. Are you willing to stand in the line of fire for people that are guilty? I'm not talking about guessing. I'm talking about uh, some versions of this say she was caught in the very act, which makes it sound like they brought her from where she was straight to Jesus. So it was blatant. And I think what happens is we only protect people that we've deemed worthy of protection. We will only stand in the line of fire for those that we think it's worthy, where we think, oh, I can see redemption happening there, right? So it's easy for us to do that. Let's, let's start here. It's easier for us to do that who the, for those who have been victimized um, by sexual brokenness. It's easy for us to stand up and say, I'll take your bullets. But how about for those that we have said things like, oh no, there's a special place in hell for those people. Will we stand in the line of fire for them? Will we risk our reputation for those people? Jesus did. Um, on my second, or point B, under my point two, you sh we show compassion by protecting. We show compassion by exhorting. So it's not just about protecting, it's not just about standing in the line of fire. There's instruction involved. There is truth, right? So um, sometimes we swing the pendulum either way there too. Like we're just going to be so compassionate. God is so loving and he is all loving. But we forget that part of love and compassion is truth. And so Jesus exhorts her. He says, go and sin no more. Having compassion is speaking truth. Jesus doesn't condemn her. He says, I don't condemn, her, condemn you but he doesn't condone what she's doing. And we know this because he says, go and sin no more. He says, basically he's saying, I rescued all of who you are. Now take all of who you are and be free to not sin at all anymore. You know what's interesting about the word he uses for sin here? It's not a specific sin. He doesn't specifically say, um, go and don't adulterize anymore. Is, is that a word? Adult, adult, don't. Don't adulterize. Boom. Um, he, he could have said that, but he basically, he says that the word sin here is a generic word for all of sin. Isn't that amazing? He's like, all of your life has been rescued, all of you. Now, all of, make all of it subject to being free to sin. And I, I thought of this, like, I thought of how funny this is because I thought of this in parenting. It's kind of like when you tell your kids, like, you have to be generic enough that they know the thing that you're saying, like, covers many things. Does that make sense? And um, I had a few examples for this, but then this true story, this just happened last night, and I was like, I'm going to use that tomorrow. So um, Sam's in our bedroom, and he says, backflip in the bedroom. And Kelly says, no backflips in the house. So if he would have just said, don't backflip, Sam might have backflipped in another room. And then we would have said, buddy, what are you doing? We said not to backflip. And he might have said, no, you said not to backflip in there. I'm going to backflip. So it's kind of like that type of thing where Jesus is like, well, you, you said I couldn't do this thing, but you didn't address like this thing. Jesus is like, just don't do all the things. You're free. You, you're free. Be free from all of them. 
Um, the third point under my second point, so we show compassion. We show compassion by protecting, by exhorting, and we show compassion by restoring dignity. When Jesus instructs her, I'm not saying this is prescriptive, but I am saying it was in this text. When he instructs her, it's after everyone leaves. It's just the two of them. That's, the, that's actually the only time he even addresses her. He's, he addresses the accusers. He doesn't even address her. He addresses her when they're alone. There's dignity in that. He could have created like a lot of pomp and circumstance around this, right? He could have stood up and um, made a spectacle. He could have made a spectacle of the accusers. He's, he could have been like, you know, doing a song and a dance for the people he was already teaching and the woman. He could have made this huge spectacle and he doesn't. It's quiet. It's dignified. And I think that is so beautiful. I think there is times when we call out people and um, there, is, there is opportunity for public addressing. But man, let's, let's take a cue from Jesus. Let's, let's love people. Let's protect them before they even are aware of what they're being protected from, before they're even um, fully liberated. Let's step in and show compassion and protect. And then maybe that creates this opportunity to speak truth. He calls her woman, not sinner, not adulterer. And I want to just dwell on this a little bit. Can I just encourage us to not create an identity out of people's sin? So in the beginning, I said, I think we have an identity problem. And I, and I do. I think this is a major, major problem. What we, what we do is we take someone's sin, or even the world, and it says, this is who you are. And when that happens, it becomes so entwined and entangled that one thing is not separated from the other. That's why I think, I love this phrase, I think it's truth, but love the this, love this sinner, not this, hate the sin. It's true, but I'll tell you why it's unhelpful. Is because people on the other side of that, they're saying, no, this is who I am. This is part of my identity. And when we say that, I, I, I think they're hearing, you don't love me because this is, this is a piece of me. And until we spend time sort of untangling that mess where, where this has become part of their, their identity, it's, it's, it's hurtful. It stings. It feels like you, you're, you are um, shunning me because this is part of me. And so we need to spend time untangling that. We need to remember that the person sitting across from us is human, just like us. And we need to remember not to dehumanize them. I know it's such a simple thing, but we need to remember that. We need to remember that they are an image bearer of God. No matter what sin any of us have, create, uh, have, have, given, have given ourselves to, no matter what it is, how dark, we are all still image bearers. And so we need to remember that as we minister and speak life to the person sitting across from us. This is an image bearer of God. They carry something of God with them. Man, then you look at them and they have value. We don't devalue them. They have value. They have hope. They have something that they're carrying God. And then you're like, man, if you only knew there should be this compassion and this rise up. If you only knew the love of God, if you only knew his love for you, how deep it is. 
it, it becomes less about, I want you to do X, Y, Z, and it becomes more about, let me tell you about his love for you. Let me tell you about how he sees you. He created you. It, it, there's this passion and compassion that rises up in us rather than like, yes, sin is ter ter terrible and wretched. And yes, we need to address it. But man, let's focus on this person is created in the image of God. They have value. How do I, how do I minister to that value? And um, number three, so my first two points were we engage, we restore dignity. Number three is we remind ourselves of our own brokenness. Jesus says, he who's without sin cast the first stone. This should be constantly at play in our minds and not for the sake of condemnation, not to visit it like, oh, I'm a terrible person, like, but to, to give us perspective because if we understand that we have been rescued from darkness, despair, hopelessness, and now we are adopted, we're co-heirs, he abides in us and we abide in him. If we, understand, we don't understand that exchange, we are going to become like my, my sin's not as dirty as theirs. Um, you know, there isn't, there isn't a humility, there isn't a compassion and we need that. As I was prepping this, prepping for this week, I had this picture, and, I, and Kelly said I could do it, but I just imagined like shards of glass going into my eyeball or somebody else's, and it would be bad. But um, I had this picture of two porcelain vases, beautiful, equal in value, and coming up here and just smashing both of them on the stage. And when we don't realize that we are broken, either one, pick one, we are one of these broken vases. We will look at the other broken vase and be like, you're broken. And the other vase is going to go, but you're broken too. And, and then you start to like nitpick and go, well, my brokenness is not as bad as your brokenness. And like, if, if I had this up here, just shards of porcelain everywhere, you would be like, that's ridiculous. You're all broken. Um, so we need to remember that. I actually have a story that, that, that this happened. We were on a we actually were living in Texas at the time. We flew here for like a church leadership conference. We were on our way back. So we dropped our rental car. We were on a bus taking us to the airport from the rental car place. Um, and there was a man on the bus who would, would identify as homosexual. He, he actually told us, I don't know how we got started. It went something like this. We were telling him about why we were out here. We were out here for a church conference. And he said something like this. He said something like, I bet you think my kind is a hot mess. And I just said, oh, we're all a hot mess. And I don't know where I was going to go with that. I don't know if I thought like I was going to start preaching to him, but he got real quiet. Um, and he just sort of pondered that for a second. And I think that's the first time he heard a Christian acknowledge that we are in desperate need of saving as well. And that shouldn't be the case. <laughs> That should be, I'm hoping, like, that, didn't, that conversation didn't lead anywhere. We ended up talking about celebrities or something. But I'm hoping that, that in that short bus ride, that that planted a seed in that man's heart to just say, actually, I'm just as broken as you. I, I have a hope that maybe I can share with you someday. I hope that opened that door for that. Um, I'm, I'm coming into land here soon, but I just want to spend some time on a, a few reminders 
We can't emphasize the wretchedness of sin without by and large extremely overly emphasizing the beauty of God, his love, his might, and his wonder. I think I touched on that a little bit. In the pre-service prayer meeting, I said, um, I have this feeling like we, we sometimes think it's an even exchange, that we give up something and we, we get something even in exchange for it. And um, that's not what the gospel is. He does pay the price for us, but man, if, if there was a scale, you can't, God can't be on a scale, but if there was a scale, we sometimes imagine like God and the devil as like equal opponents, right? He's the core of evil, and he is the, the core of all that is good, and, but they're equal in strength somehow. That's how I do anyways, like the, the yin and the yang thing, or like, like movies, you know, one's a bad guy and one's a good guy, and yes, they are opposing, but it's not even like, it's not even remotely a contest at all. And I think sometimes we focus on the wretchedness of sin with people and, again, behavior modification rather than leading them to the compassion and the wonder and the strength and the depth of his love. I want to tell you a quick story. Um, When I was 19 years old, I came up to the front of a church meeting for prayer. I, I couldn't tell you what I came up, well, I, don't, I don't know what the meeting was about. I don't know what I came up to be prayed for. I don't even know what this couple prayed over me. I have zero clue. And at the time, I wouldn't be able to articulate what I'm about to articulate to you now. I was ni- about 19. I was about a year out of a, a, an abusive relationship. Like abusive, like I've had a, a knife to my throat, being threatened to be killed. And... Um, Shortly after that, I became infatuated with a boy, it was Kelly at the time, who was emotionally unavailable. Um, but I was infatuated. So I went from this horrible thing to clinging to something that I saw good in, but like all of my identity was in whether or not this person was, was going to love me. I came up for prayer. It wasn't for that. I wouldn't even be able, I would, if you would have asked me at the time, I would have said, I'm fine. But looking back now, I know I was broken. I couldn't say that at the time. Not because I wasn't being disingenuous, but because I couldn't recognize it. I couldn't see my own brokenness. And I came up for prayer. Um, It was my friend's parents. And I remember weeping and the dad holding me. And I remember thinking, don't let go. And I was not a hugger. Uh, I was very awkward, and I remember thinking, why am I even thinking this? And he just held me. I don't know how long it was. It seemed like forever. I just remember thinking, please don't let go. Um, And in that moment, there was something of the compassion of God that was transferred to me, something about him not leaving me. And what I'm getting at is people can't see their brokenness sometimes. They can't see it. We can see it, right? Right? And that, that dad could have said to me, Marianne, you've made some poor choices and you've believed some things about yourself and God that aren't true. He, he could have, maybe it would have helped. But honestly, the love and the compassion that I felt from him in that moment was enough. It was a catalyst into understanding the love of God and understanding my own brokenness. And we want to start with people's brokenness and people don't see that yet. When we're loving those that, especially those that don't believe what we believe, 
we can't start in the place of their brokenness. They don't understand that. We start in the place of opening ourselves up to them and saying, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to speak truth to you. I'm not going to bend on what the Bible says, but man, I'm going to do it with the most love I, can, I have in my heart to give. And the last thing I want to say about this story is this. The reason we're talking about this today is because sin was exposed. Um, oftentimes, Kelly and I will sit with couples or sit with people, and we'll just sort of walk away going, something isn't right. Something isn't on the table. And so our prayer has been, over the years, over and over, God, will you expose what's in the darkness? And you know what? He's faithful. He does it. He's, he's done it grac- graciously with our kids, even. Um, it is raw when that happens. It is raw. We've sat in some very, very, like, where the tension and the pain was palpable. We've sat in rooms with people where it's palpable. It is so raw. But man, the truth and the freedom that comes when, when something is exposed is amazing. And can I just say, if you are wrestling, or if you know someone that's wrestling, or if you feel like, pray that, that God exposes what's in the dark. He's going to equip you for that, raw, for that rawness. But when it's in the dark, it, it maintains dominion over you, and the enemy starts to whisper all kinds of garbage. It has dominion over you. And then your angst becomes displaced. I've seen this happen. Your angst becomes displaced because you're believing a lie. You're walking in sin. And then you start to think, no, this is who I am. Or people don't understand me. I'm alone in this. I'm angry at God. Everything in you, this angst that, that, that shouldn't be there becomes displaced when really you should be angry at the enemy and open to who God is. So can I just say, be brave like Allow your sin to be exposed. This also happened because there was a community. There's a community of people meeting, and we should be a safe place for community. We should encourage confession, and we should be a safe place. If you're struggling, this is a safe place. If you're not struggling, be a safe place. I'm going to go ahead and call Kelly up here to, to wrap us up and pray for us. <laughs> <laughs>